Those attending COP28 in Dubai have, at least it appears to me, just one simple task. Simple's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but just one task. That is to decide and agree between them all how we phase out fossil fuels, when we do it and how we do it, and how we make it a just transition. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Looking on at what's happening at the Conference of the Parties from more than 11,000 kilometres away, it appears to me that the participants are being distracted by ideas, philosophies and views which are in some sense a little flippant. Fossil fuels are the primary cause of the climate crisis and until we stop them, until we eliminate them, our progress will not happen. All the other issues are sort of unimportant. We need to think about how we root ourselves, how we end our addiction to fossil fuels, what we do, how we process that idea. I don't disagree for a moment that we need to be thinking about renewable energy. We need to be thinking about how we change our farming systems, how we look at our travel arrangements. But the basic thing we have to come to grips with is our use of fossil fuels. So we need to decide on how we phase them out and when we phase them out and how quick we do that. So until we step up, until we decide what we're going to do about fossil fuels, COP28 will be, in the words of Australian mining billionaire Andrew Forrest, an absolute flop. We must decide about the future of fossil fuels. Let's listen now to something from Climate One. From COP28 in Dubai, I'm Greg Dalton. From Tucson, Arizona, I'm Ariana Brocious. And this is Climate One. We're a week into the 28th Conference of Parties, the UN's annual climate summit, held this year in the city of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. This place on the Persian Gulf feels like a combination of Waikiki, Las Vegas, and Hong Kong. Soaring towers, flashy wealth, and waterfront resorts. And all built on fossil fuels. Right. It's the primary source of wealth here in this OPEC country. Last week, you described the conference as the Climate Super Bowl. This is where all the big players come to negotiate. However, this year, the leaders of the two biggest emitters, the U.S. and China, are notably absent. Uh, But it sounds like some progress is being made. And I know the final agreement doesn't come together until the very last days or, or even hours at these summits. But what's the news so far? There have been a few notable announcements. This is the year of the global stock take where countries are supposed to show how far they've come in meeting the carbon reduction targets they set in Paris seven years ago. It's kind of like midterm exams and pretty much everybody is failing. On the other hand, more than 110 countries have pledged to triple renewable energy capacity and double energy efficiency by 2030. They don't quite know how they're going to do that, but they're putting that out there. And climate wonk speak, that's called increased ambition. And that's a good thing. Yeah, that is a good thing. I also read that more than 100 countries have called for an immediate end to all new oil and gas production, and they want to set clear end dates for phasing out fossil fuels. And that honestly seems like pretty big news also. That's what the science says is necessary. That's what energy experts say is necessary. And that's significant that about half of the countries in the world are signing up for that. 
So last year, one of the biggest outcomes of the conference was the creation of this loss and damage fund. What have you heard so far about funding that, actually putting money into it? That was one of the early bright spots here. As we record this, country pledges are over $700 million. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley, a climate champion, expressed some optimism about rich nations finally providing funding to countries like hers to adapt and respond to climate impacts. This has probably been the most progress we've seen in the last 12 months on finance, Um, but we're not where we need to be yet. We're hearing that a lot this week. There's a long way to go. A story in the BBC in January this year talked about why Sultan Al-Jabbar had been appointed as the president of the United Nations Climate Conference COP28. The question they ask is, how can one man dedicate himself to both selling fossil fuels and tackling the climate crisis? The story says the UAE is one of the 10 largest oil producers in the world. The state oil company, Adnoc, pumped 2.7 million barrels of oil per day in 2021, according to the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries. The story went on, but the company has bigger plans. It aims to nearly double output to 5 million barrels per day by 2027 a target date brought forward from 2030, two months ago by CEO Sultan Al-Jabbar. And as the president of uh, COP28, the Sultan argued that he wanted to see a plan for the phasing out of fossil fuels. Maybe I'm naive, but maybe I'm not. I thought things like COP28 were precisely about deciding on that plan, discussing it, agreeing to the next steps, but Sultan Al-Jabir wants someone to bring a plan to him ready to go. He's walking both sides of the street. You'll find a link to the BBC story in the show notes. Now we have a story from The Conversation. And it's by Robert Chris, who is an honorary associate in geography at the Open University, and Hugh Hunt, who is the Professor of Engineering Dynamics and Vibration at the University of Cambridge. The headline for this story is The Disagreement Between Two Climate Scientists That Will Decide Our Future. The story begins. Getting to net zero emissions by mid-century is conventionally understood as humanity's best hope for keeping Earth's surface temperature already at 1.2 degrees Celsius above its pre-industrial level from increasing well beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius, potentially reaching a point at which it could cause widespread societal breakdown. At least one prominent client scientist, however, disagrees. James Hansen of Columbia University in the US published a paper with colleagues in November which claims temperatures are set to rise further and faster than predictions of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. In his view, the 1.5C degree target is dead. He also claims net zero is no longer sufficient to prevent warming of more than 2 degrees Celsius. To regain some control over Earth's rising temperature, Hansen supports accelerating the retirement of fossil fuels, greater cooperation between major polluters that accommodates the needs of the more developing world, and controversially, intervening in the Earth's radiation balance, the difference between incoming and outgoing light and heat, to cool the planet's surface. And now we have something from the radio show, Occam's Razor, 
on the Australian Broadcasting Commission's Radio National. In the movie The Lion King, we're introduced to the concept of the circle of life. The lion, who's also the king, explains to his son the relationship between the carnivore predators, the herbivore prey, and the plants that are nourished by the animals' bodies when they die. I'm Tegan Taylor, and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. And yes, I'm referencing an animated kids' movie from the 1990s, what of it? The circle of life is kind of the concept that underpins an environmental movement that's taken hold over the past few decades, rewilding. But what does rewilding look like in Australia? And how do we humans, especially traditional owners, factor in? Tristan Durham is here to explain. Thank you very much. In 1991, a five-year-old grey wolf was captured in Peter Lockheed Provincial Park in Canada. The wildlife biologists that gave her a radio tracking collar also gave her a name, Pluey. For the next two years, they tracked Pluey's movements through Canada and the United States. And what astounded everybody was that a wolf would need so much space. Over that two years, Pluey roamed throughout an area the size of Tasmania. Pluey's story and others like it inspired a group of Americans to think differently about conservation and restoration. They began to think big. In the pages of Wild Earth magazine, legends of conservation like Michael Soule, David Foreman and Reid Noss began to articulate a new vision for conservation. They saw a network of core habitats connected by wildlife corridors stretching thousands of kilometres across the country at a scale so huge that the biggest animals in the land could roam free. Animals like elk, bears, moose and wolves. They called this idea rewilding. Another inspiration for rewilding was a series of discoveries that showed just how important large animals are for ecosystems. In a very famous experiment, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park in 1996, and for the first time in 75 years, they began to hunt in the park. They chased deer away from riverbanks and into deeper cover. And that gave the seedlings on those riverbanks the chance to recover, and pretty soon there was more vegetation, which meant more songbirds, more berries, more bears, more beavers. The riverbanks stabilised and the beavers started building dams. So the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park changed the landscape down to the way that the rivers flowed. Since the 1990s, the idea of rewilding has spread around the world, though for reasons I'll come to in a minute, it might be more complicated here in Australia. In Europe, some ecologists have been fascinated by the idea of a landscape with large animals roaming free. Organisations like Rewilding Europe have reintroduced bison, lynx, bears, beavers and wolves everywhere from the Carpathian Mountains to nature reserves right by capital cities like Amsterdam. Now, Europe's a very different place to the USA and human population density is much, much higher. So rewilding is obviously going to be different there. One of the themes that's common to rewilding in both places is the idea of animal agency. Animals like bison or wild horses in Europe can restore ecosystems. They can dig holes, graze seedlings, push over saplings and keep the landscape an open mosaic of 
forest, woodland and grassland. So what's happening in Australia? Well, in terms of animal reintroductions, quite a bit. For example, WWF Australia is working with the Narunga people and other partners on the Southern York Peninsula in South Australia. They're reintroducing ecological engineers like betongs and bandicoots. Those amazing little creatures will go out every single night and they'll dig little holes in the ground looking for fungi and other kinds of food. Those little holes create microhabitats for native plants and they spread seeds and spores across the landscape. They'll turn over tons of soil in a year. In terms of habitat connectivity, one of the most inspiring projects for me is the Gondwana Link program in Western Australia. They're working to reconnect a thousand kilometres of country from the Cary forests in the southwest corner to the woodlands in Mallee on the edge of the Nullarbor Plain. Now there's plenty of opportunity for these projects in Australia, but there's also a problem for rewilding in Australia, something we're going to have to grapple with sooner rather than later if we want to keep on taking inspiration from these European and North American projects. If rewilding is about creating wilderness, or if it's about stepping back from nature, then it's going to collide head on with the beliefs and values of traditional owners here. When the idea for rewilding was first being put together back in the 1990s in the United States, the driving idea behind it was wilderness, wilderness preservation backed up by conservation biology. They wanted to see huge areas of intact forests and grasslands, mountains and rivers, where humans only visited and where animals were left undisturbed. When Europeans picked up rewilding, they recognised pretty quickly that they didn't have big wilderness, but they held on to the idea of nature undisturbed by people. For many rewilding advocates in Europe, it's about recreating nature as it would be without people, without human influence, where animals, not humans, shape the landscape. But in Australia, we know that country needs people. The incredible diversity of animals and plants here is in good part a product of careful and skillful land care refined over tens of thousands of years. Indigenous people here and elsewhere have been shaping their landscapes and nourishing their ecological communities for thousands of generations. They have a lot of knowledge and they have a lot of responsibility too. Indigenous protected areas cover about 85 million hectares in Australia, which is half of our protected land estate. So what does this mean for rewilding in Australia? Well, I have three suggestions. Firstly, keep listening to traditional owners. They've been saying it for years. We don't need wilderness in Australia. Not in the sense of places without people. We need country that's well cared for. And country that's not just kind to people, but also kind to the animals that live in it. Second, get behind Indigenous-led conservation. The Gondwana Link program that I mentioned before, it's restoring huge areas in WA's southwest, but the various groups and individuals involved are not just working to restore habitats and reconnect ecosystems, their work also supports traditional owners in their aspirations, which of course also includes the health of the country and its people. Gondwana Link are facilitating the transfer of land tenure to traditional owners, which gives those traditional owners a more secure legal footing for their connection to country. Third, start thinking about cultural reasons for animal reintroductions. I've been speaking about ecological reasons, but for many traditional owners, cultural and ecological roles are closely entwined. For example, I'm working on a project led by the Tasmanian Aboriginal community on Aboriginal land. 
The beautiful island of Lungtalanana, Clark Island, lies just off the northeast coast of Tasmania. The community is getting ready to reintroduce wombats, wallabies and potteroos, animals that have been missing from the island for decades. Those animals are culturally significant and important to the island ecosystem. I've been kindly given permission to speak about wombats in particular in this context. The wombat's a significant animal for the Palawa people, the Tasmanian Aboriginal community. They were an important food source and they hold cultural stories, including a creation story. Wombats also turn over soil and graze down vegetation, creating mosaics of grass and heathlands. And their burrows are safe havens for other animals from predators and from wildfire. Palawa understand that country is holistic and the animals that come from country are important for balance and for health. Their relationship with wombats is long-standing and wombats are important for story and spirit and subsistence. So reconnecting with these animals helps the Aboriginal community rebuild their connection to country. So for this community, what they're doing on Lungtalanana is not rewilding so much as cultural landscape restoration. We don't have to use the word rewilding, but I think that the ideas and practices and examples of rewilding elsewhere have something important to offer conservation here in Australia. At its best, rewilding is an optimistic approach to hands-on restoration. It's about restoring animal agency and it's about restoring landscape connectivity. If rewilding is conceptually nimble, if it's adaptable in its approach and if rewilding advocates can listen carefully, then I think we can bring the principles of rewilding in line with principles of Indigenous-led conservation and make a big difference to restoration here in Australia. Thank you. That was Dr Tristan Durham, Research Associate with the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. He's also a project manager with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. Tristan was speaking at our Occam's Razor live show at Willie Smith's Apple Shed in the Huon Valley in Lutruwita, Tasmania. Next, we have a story from The Guardian, and it's by Fiona Harvey in Dubai. The headline for her story says, Failure to agree to fossil fuel phase-out at COP28 will push the world into climate breakdown. The story begins... Failure to agree to phase out fossil fuels at UN COP28 Climate Summit could push the world beyond the crucial 1.5 temperature limit and into climate breakdown, the UK's former climate chief has warned. Alok Sharma, who was the president of the COP26 Summit in Glasgow, said it was vital that governments made a clear commitment in the next few days to eliminate coal, oil and gas. If you're going to keep 1.5C alive, you're going to have to have language on the phase-out of fossil fuels, he told the observer in an interview. And you're going to need to accompany that with a credible implementation plan. He urged governments to act. We're running out of time. The window on 1.5C is closing fast, unless we are willing to act now, and with the urgency that this issue demands. We will lose that 1.5C, he said. We are in the last chance saloon to save our children's future. And now from Inside Climate News, we have a story by Bob Berwin. The headline for the story is, An inevitable showdown with the fossil fuel industry is brewing at COP28. It has the dateline, Dubai. 
United Arab Emirates. The growing momentum at COP28 for a fossil fuel phase-out has not gone unnoticed by the fossil fuel industry, which has sent a record number of representatives and lobbyists to this year's climate summit. A report released this morning by the Coalition of Non-Profit Climate Policy Watchdog Groups serves at least 2,456 lobbyists for fossil fuel-related industries registered for COP28, almost four times many as last year. They outnumber nearly all individual country delegations, and there are more than seven times the number of fossil fuel lobbyists than official Indigenous representatives. Fossil fuel lobbyists have received more passes to COP28 than all the delegates from the 10 most climate-vulnerable nations combined. Still, despite their presence, negotiators at COP28 in Dubai seem to have arrived at a reckoning this week after decades of studiously avoiding any mention of fossil fuels. On Friday, 106 nations, more than half those in attendance, called for the fossil fuel phase-out, based on a realisation that it is not possible to reach the goals of the Paris Climate Pact unless the world stops burning coal, oil and gas. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to be along. We began with a plea to phase out fossil fuels, and we sort of ended with two things from the COP28, advocating for the same thing. Now, I've got a couple of things to say. One, I'd like you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Two, I'd love you to share this with your friends. In fact, I almost insist that you share this with your friends because it's important that we all know all we possibly can about the climate crisis, how we should respond, who we should be talking to, and what we should be saying. So please share this with your friends. Also, I'd love to know how you feel about this podcast, so you can let me know via email at number 7 at iCloud.com. Now, don't hold back, good or bad, please let me know. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And personally, I urge you all to take care and stay safe.